very much. All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If the light from the windows gets too bright in there, feel free to drop those curtains down, you guys over there, if it gets in your eyes. All right, let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to the book of Hosea once again. We are in chapter 4 today. Hosea chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, through the end of this chapter, though. Uh, we're, this section really, um, beginning here at chapter 4, runs through chapter 6 and verse 3. So we're going to be spending a bit of time here over the next uh, a few weeks. But uh, today our focus will primarily be in chapter 4, though we will look in some other spots in this section, this larger section as well. Chapter 4 of the book of Hosea, beginning at verse 1 through verse 19. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of Yahweh, O children of Israel. For Yahweh has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken Yahweh to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, to take away the understanding, uh, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as Yahweh lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can Yahweh now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word, even words such as these, which are dark and hard to hear. Let us hear them as the Spirit speaks to us, his church. Amen. Be seated, please. So now you will remember, I hope, that over the last three weeks we have explored the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, and I referred to it as an overture. In those, in those opening chapters, you had the various themes that would be developed throughout the rest of the book, uh, laid out um, and just introduced, as it were. And now we're going back 
to start to look again at some of those themes in more detail. And you uh, will remember from those first three chapters a great emphasis upon Israel's incredible sins of unfaithfulness to God that showed forth in its idolatry, in its blasphemies, and in its forgetting God. Just forgetting that he was truly theirs. And so the, the, the picture that the marriage of Hosea and Gomer gave is a visual aid of Israel's unfaithfulness to God and the children that came out of that union and her adultery uh, were named in such a way as to reflect God's actions and attitude toward his people that were astray from him. Uh, God had sown intend, in intention of blessing, and yet um, those that sowed the wind were going to reap the whirlwind. And so the subsequent children, the daughter, uh, Lo Ruhamah, no mercy, and the son, no, Lo Ami, no people, would reflect God's actions toward them. And yet we also saw that there was not just the impact of the relationship uh, between uh, uh, Gomer and Hosea, but also between Israel and her God in a spiritual way. There was also the impact upon the land itself, their prosperity, how, the, how they were looking to all the other gods and their own strength and so on to supply their needs. And the Lord was saying, I'm going to cut all that stuff off. And you're going to be judged for that. And yet, and then finally, the promise of deliverance. So now we're going back to the sin problem and delve into it a little more deeply. You remember, I am sure, what Gomer did to Hosea. And I want you to think for a minute about what the worst part of her adultery was. Just give that some thought for a moment. Besides, of course, uh, you know, there, there are the acts that were committed. Is, is that the worst part of our adultery, or was it the reason behind those acts? Think about that for a moment. One of the Lord's complaints, if you remember, that, that one that was, I said that to me, is one of the saddest things uh, that could be said, is that, his people, God's people, have forgotten God. Truly, that's the reason behind uh, the adultery of Israel, spiritual adultery of Israel against God. Uh, Gomer, she related to Hosea as if he were a stranger. She did not regard that relationship as something to be clung to, but uh, she though married to him, did not really know him. And, it would appear, didn't really care to, uh, at least at the beginning. Her sin pictures for us the sobering truth that we all have to face up to, that the greatest of crimes against God is to not know him. Uh, so much in the scriptures tell us to look to open our eyes and look around and see evidence of the Lord everywhere. For us to uh, pretend that he's not there, that we're not accountable to him, is the sort of the spiritual equivalent of the, uh, the, 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 three, the three monkey thing, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, with eyes, you know, hands over our, our ears, hands over our eyes, uh, we're not going to say anything, we're just... We're going to pretend as if the world does out there uh, doesn't impact us, uh, that we have nothing to do or say or in, in way of interaction with it. And when it comes to God, we can have that same kind of, of attitude. And that is, I mean, the, the idolatry, the blasphemy, all those things are abominations unto God. The seeking after other gods, the... the sins of our flesh, the sins of our heart and mind. They are an abomination. But what is worse is 
that we don't pursue him and we don't know him and we don't really care to. We're happy, we're happy to know him to a certain level, to wherever our comfort level is, and then that's good enough. And that is reflected in our society, is it not? That, that worshiping in the Lord's house with God's people is taken as a, yeah, if it's convenient that um, our time uh, with the Lord in meditation is as it's convenient. Our, our understanding of our priorities in terms of how we relate to Him in relationship to everything else. Well, um, as long as He doesn't inconvenience us, doesn't interfere with our routine, doesn't interfere with our desires, doesn't interfere with our... our uh, our, our, our feelings about what uh, we think we are owed or what we ought to have in terms of money, in terms of safety, in terms of pleasure, in terms of relationship, in terms of power, in terms of anything else. God is a, is a in computer terms, he's a plug-in that makes our operating system work a little more efficiently as far as we're concerned. Instead of understanding that without him, I'm going to follow along this rather poor analogy, but anyway, he's not a plug-in. He's the entire operating system. He's the heart of all of it. And if he's not there, you've got nothing. And yet we don't realize it. We go on as if he is just an add-on um, when it's convenient to us. I think I'm going to try to demonstrate. Uh, I think I'm going to. I'm going to try to demonstrate to us this morning that this attitude of not knowing God and not pursuing uh, knowing Him uh, is often our crime. I'm going to talk also about some of the the over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to talk about some of the penalties that come along with this crime. And uh, then the final installment on this particular section will talk about how do we how do we make amends? How how does the problem get fixed? As uh, it's laid out for us here in this wonderful prophecy. But for now, we're going to focus on the crime itself, and I'm calling this the elements of ignorance of not knowing God. Remember the Apostle Paul's prayer. What did he say? that his desire was, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul's desire was. Everything else was secondary. That's what he was going for. Because um, if we don't know him, we can't relate to him. Christ came so that we might know God, who to know aright is eternal life. And if we're without God, then we're without hope in the world. But what does this ignorance look like? And verse 4 speaks of it. Excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1 speaks of it. Hear the word of Yahweh, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Here he goes. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And that's how it begins. Elements of ignorance. And there's an equation here. First of all, there's no truth. No truth. That's the uh, that word there uh, that says no faithfulness. Translates a word that means truth or uh, uh, firmness or reliability. This is not so much, though I mean it's a, you know, it's a related concept. But this is not so much speaking about content. It's not like we don't have the Bible. We've got God's Word. Do me a favor. Everyone here that has a Bible, hold it up in the air. Look at all the Bibles that are there. Are we lacking for truth? No, we are not. We have God's truth. And we have the promise of His Holy Spirit to teach us what's there. That is not the focus here the focus, rather, is the concept of being true. Of There's no truth 
in our testimony. There's no reliability to what we say. That is what God's controversy is with Israel. You've got the truth. You've got the prophets. You've got Moses. You've got all that stuff. But you don't live that way. It's not about the opposite of error. It's, a, it's about how firmly you hold to what's been revealed and live by it consistently day in and day out. That's element number one. No truth, no reliability, no faithfulness. And then it says, or steadfast love. And this is a, a phrase that should be familiar to pretty much everyone here as we talk about this. Every time it comes up, uh, we mentioned this is that word chesed that it comes, that, that speaks to God's covenant loyalty. He is talking about true to his promise. Um, but for them, there is no faithfulness, no reliability, no truth. And there's no covenant loyalty. And this is particularly loyalty that uh, um, is to a promise or a covenant that's motivated by love for the one to whom you are committed. And that's why you have these other translations of loving kindness and mercy, that sort of thing. It's a very relational term. It's not just saying, well, I signed the contract, so that's what I got to do. It's really motivated by the love for the one with whom you've entered into contract. So when you have no faithfulness, no reliability, no commitment to being true, according to God's word, and you have no loyalty to him personally, there's no genuine love that, that motivates you to walk in obedience to him. You put those two things together, no truth and no loyalty, and what, you, what, what, what your sum is here is no experiential knowledge of God. Now that term experiential is really important. I mean, the devils know God. They believe in God, James says, and they tremble. But they have no relationship of any sort of, of uh, friendship, familial, communion. They are enemies at odds. That's the extent of their relationship. Oh, they know God all right, but there's no experiential commitment, uh, oneness with him at all. And we, just like Israel... Israel's, what was Israel's problem? Their, their mouths were full of all kinds of things that had to do with the law of Moses and all, the, all those traditions and the history and everything else, but they did not know their God. They forgot him. They put him out of their minds, except when it was convenient to do so in their rituals to maintain appearances or do the things that were uh, considered appropriate within their society. Okay. That word knowledge there, no knowledge of God in the land is an important one. It, it has a fairly broad semantic range. It can mean what you know, but it goes beyond that. It has to do with um, kind of perception of things, being able to look at something and not just see the factual evidence of what's there, but be able to put facts together and come up with implications and figure out how all that works so it can be translated wisdom or cunning, right? Which is applied knowledge, right? In, a various, in various circumstances. So consequently, this word has the idea of knowledge or wisdom that is not just an intellectual comprehension. In fact, mental knowledge is not in view here at all. As I said, the Israelites had plenty of that. And the Lord's going to indict them for it in this book. And he does it in other prophets as well, through the other prophets as well. This is about knowledge that comes through, a, through personal encounter. And particularly in this case, a personal encounter with God himself. To have a relationship that's built upon um, 
the reality of interaction in our spirits, in our hearts, with the one who redeemed us, the one who, who gave himself for us, who's, who, like Hosea, um, took to himself a, a rebellious and wayward people and made them his own. And, of course, he's the same God who continues to do that with not only Israel, but also uh, the Gentiles as well. Until the fullness uh, of his people is brought in from every tribe, nation, and tongue. These are the elements of ignorance. No truth plus no loyalty equals no real, genuine, experiential knowledge of God. This, this is tricky because there, I mean, we can easily convince ourselves, can we not, that because we do a certain set of things that we know God has commanded, go to church, read your Bible, pray, do good things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, hey, we must be good. We got it down. God must be happy. But God says, I have a controversy with you. Because you don't really know me. That is where the crux of the matter lies. Not the sinful actions themselves, which are simply symptomatic of this truth that they don't know God. Okay? So... How, what does this no experiential knowledge of God look like? Because that's a rather abstract term, a phrase. What does this mean? I'm going to try to make it a little more concrete uh, based upon what I see here in the text. First of all, if you don't really know God, that's going to be demonstrated by showing little or no regard for his law. Number one. And here in these verses we see lots of, of uh, examples of this. Chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Um, breaking all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Uh, do you hear any familiar themes there in verse 2? Where... where uh, did, did, are, are those sins being just sort of pulled out of the air somewhere? What are they referring to? The Ten Commandments. Absolutely. Sins against mankind and sins against God, sins against God Himself. And the swearing there is not just referring to foul language, though I believe that uh, certainly there's plenty of, of uh, prohibitions against foul language. In the scriptures, um, but this uh, has to do with oath, false oath taking, using God's name in vain, as well as uh, the you know, not, you shall not lie, murder, steal, commit adultery. All of that is, I mean, he doesn't go through, through the entire Ten Commandments, but he hits uh, some of the big ones. <laughs> Uh, just so we get the point, it's his law that, that Israel had been setting aside. For all of their other talk, they didn't really know God, they didn't really regard him, they didn't really respect him, they didn't really uh, love him, so why, why would they be motivated to keep his law, to do what he said to do, and not do the things that he forbids us to do? So this is a problem. They, they disobeyed his revealed will. Uh, verse 10 speaks of that as well. Um, playing the whore, but not multiplied. They've forsaken the Lord. So they're going after other gods here. You shall have no gods, other gods before me. There's another one. Um, chapter 5 and verse 2. The revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Other oh, revolters. What a, what a picturesque uh, description of Israel as one who is revolting against God and his law. We can declare God's uh, name and sing his praises and do all of those things all we want to, but if we are not careful to keep his law, we're liars. 
bottom line. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 4. Here again, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Uh, that first phrase there, destroyed for lack of knowledge. Uh, here again, we're, there's this, the idea of this experimental uh, relationship that we have with him. I want to ask you a question, and I, I, I want you to think about it very seriously. How diligent are you in seeking to know God? And by that, I don't mean how, how you know, well, I, I come to church so I can have a place to know God. Um, certainly, this is a place where you can find what you need to know God. But just showing up here is neither here nor there, really, when it comes to actually knowing him. Um, Think about the, how you use your time, what, as far as where your thoughts go, uh, your entertainments, your pursuits, everything else. How is all that related to seeking to know God in everything and in every place that he reveals himself? How aware are you of your presence or, or, or are you of being in his presence on a daily basis? And to the degree that you are aware of that, what impact does it have on the way that you live? Unless we think that uh, it's just a matter of quantity of stuff we do. Ancient Israel was filled with all kinds of laws and traditions and everything else. A lot more than we are. So clearly, it's not about heaping up traditions and rituals. It's about knowing God. And they miss that. And we often miss that. We think we're doing what we need to do, but we're really not seeking to know him. We're seeking to feel good about ourselves for, uh, for having done all those things. And verse 6 keeps going there, as I've already read, because you've rejected knowledge. It's not just about you're not seeking to know him, and, or, or if you have, you've missed it. I mean, this is actual rejection. And one thing leads to the other. If you're careless about not seeking after God, sooner or later, you will out and out reject him. It works that, human relationships work that way. And relationships with the divine work that way. It's the way God set us up as, as beings that are relational. That's why, husbands, you've got to labor to maintain your marriage. I say it to husbands primarily because that's your job. It's not so hard for the wife. They'll hang on to you no matter what kind of a turkey you are. But you have to work hard to maintain the marriage. And if you're careless about it, sooner or later it will lead to rejection. There is a reason why divorce is as high as it is in this country and around the world. It's because people are careless and self-centered about their relationships. They're in it for whatever's comfortable for them. And if it's not comfortable for them, they're out of there. You've got to seek to know and, and make that your passion, to know your spouse. If you don't, you will end up rejecting her for something else or someone else. You look at verse 6 also. I read... <laughs> um, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. When you forget the law, you're forgetting 
what your relationship is to him. Israel was set forth, and it's, and it's spoken of in other places uh, in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam. Adam and Eve were created in what condition? What was their, what was their title? And I call it title, though this is usually described as a characteristic or a quality, but it really is a title. They were created in the image of God. They were the, Adam and Eve, and indeed all humanity, was to stand before all creation as God's priest to intercede between creation and God himself, to constantly be declaring back to creation who God is and what creation's responsibility is to God. And that picture, that title was disregarded by Adam and Eve in the garden in the fall. And their sin passed on through the generations to all of us. And as the Lord uh, began to rebuild his people and rebuild his kingdom and chose to do it through a family and then through a nation of Israel, the commands for them to stand in a priestly relationship to those around them were reiterated. Israel's problem was, is that, yes, they looked at themselves and regarded that they were the covenant people, a special chosen people unto God himself. And instead of serving as a priest to the Gentiles, which Moses talked about them doing, they kept it all to themselves. Gentiles are out, no provision. Right? We're God's people. And we can look at that and go, oh, isn't that selfish, self-centered? Yes, it is. And we do exactly the same thing. When we come in here, we're all happy and we do all of our, all of our things that are, that make us feel warm, comfortable, and happy. Isn't that great that God saved us? Absolutely it is. And then we never open our mouths to be interceding for those around us. God said, because you've rejected knowledge, that experimental, experiential knowledge of me, I'm rejecting you from being priest. There's a reason why. And this is the New Testament that gets pulled in. Paul talks about Israel having been laid aside for a time. And he uses that, that pruning analogy, right? The Gentiles are being grafted in. There will be a time when Israel will be grafted back in. But Jesus pointed out, there's a darkness that's over the eyes there. There it is. It's exactly what happened. If you don't really want to know God, you just want to go along with your rituals, people. I mean, go through the motions, but you're in darkness. You don't know Him. And that's what's going on in this passage. They didn't seek to know Him. They refused to know Him. They forgot who he really was. He'd forgotten the law of your God. He didn't say of God or even of me. He said of your God. They just completely lost touch with their relationship with their creator. And then there's consequences. And we'll talk about consequences uh, as we go along. But for now... This is all under showing no regard for his law, disobeying him, not seeking to know him, refusing to know him, forgetting who he really is. And when you take a look at chapter 5 and verse 11, this, what an indictment this is. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment. This is part of the consequences of of sin, when God's people sin. Why? Because he was determined to go after filth. Wow. If there's no steadfastness or faithfulness in your life and there's no loyalty unto the Lord who created you, you don't know him. 
and you will seek to fill that void with filth. You will seek after the things that not only are things that he doesn't like, but are things that will absolutely destroy you. I mean, it makes no sense. But as I've often said, and I'm sure, and I don't remember where I got it, but somebody else, I probably got it from somebody else, sin makes you stupid. And Israel was being stupid. Here is the God of all who delivered them, who did all these other things, who said, I want to be your father and you my children. And we, I want to have this relationship. And they went after other gods. And even when they stopped, when, when the exile fixed that external part of the problem, the nation as a whole went after its rituals and its social and national identity as their connection to God rather than a real heart connection to God. And so it's, blindness was the result. Let's talk about this other gods thing um, because this is also part of the problem. In chapter 4 and verse 11, my people inquire of a piece of wood. I, I, I mean, the irony here uh, makes you smile, but it's at the same time, it's... it's uh, it's not a, a funny statement. Their walking staff gives them oracles. Basically, they were looking uh, for religious wisdom and satisfaction in other gods of various and sundry sorts. Literal idols or idols of the heart. If you don't have any real experiential knowledge of God, you will be a person who is enslaved to comfortable religion. And now, why are, where do I get that out of verse 11? What do you use a walking staff for? Help you stay upright, give you some security when you're walking around on uneven ground, give you a little more sure footing. We want things to be comfortable, don't we? Uh, we want things to be a little easier. And so uh, I look at that and say, yep. Yeah. They were enslaved to a comfortable religion. That's what they wanted. And they stubbornly persisted in their spiritual adultery. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. Can Yahweh now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Which means, can you let them just run and romp in safety? No, because you don't trust them. Uh, most of you know, we just, we just got a new dog in our family. Thanks to James and Justine. Um, he sticks to me like glue. However, I still don't let him out in the yard just yet without keeping an eye on him. Um, because he has his own mind and I, I'm not entirely fenced. So I go, well, you know, until I'm sure he's not going anywhere, I'm going to keep an eye out to make sure he doesn't go wandering off into harm's way in the road or, or just get into mischief. Israel, this is that same kind of thing. Israel's stubborn, he says. And we can be stubborn. We want to, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. That's, that's where we are before the Lord so often. And we wonder why the Lord puts the chains of the law of God upon us. Because we need those chains. We're too stubborn. We need to love it. Show regard for his law. Not not be so concerned about being comfortable in our religion, being willing to be challenged by God's word instead of stubbornly persisting in the spiritual adultery of, of our own desires, our own comforts, our own wisdom. Chapter 5 and verses uh, 
uh, 3 and 4 speak to this. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not Yahweh. What was the characteristic of Gomer that Hosea was to look for in a bride? Go and take yourself a wife of whoredoms. And this is the picture of Israel here, of, of, uh, that within them is this desire to look for everywhere else but God for their genuine satisfaction. And again, they know not the Lord. And as I've said already many times, this is a problem that's not limited to national Israel, is it? This is the human condition. Regardless of what your lineage is. That we want to seek for satisfaction everywhere else. We want to find comfort in our religion. We don't want to have our calm little uh, um, inaccurate and idealistic view of who we are shaken up by the reality of God's truth. And yet, that's exactly what needs to happen. Finally, um, as we think about this lack of experiential knowledge of God, we'll bring this idea of the elements of ignorance to close by noting that lack of knowledge of God is going to be demonstrated um, not just by not paying attention to the law or seeking comfortable religion or, or looking to other, other things or people or powers to satisfy us. But it's going to be demonstrated by treason against your covenant obligations. And that we see here in verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will turn their glory into shame. What does the psalmist say over and over again in many different ways? But Psalm 100, verse 4, Be thankful unto him and bless his name, for the Lord, he is God. Verse 7 here is basically pointing out that Israel neglected to give, really, to give thanks to God. We saw earlier in the overture, you remember, those of you who are here, those of you who are here that uh, basically they looked to everything else to supply their needs and thought that everything else, thought these other gods were supplying their needs thought that the strength of their own arm was supplying their needs, but they weren't. They weren't giving thanks to God. The God to whom they were covenantally obligated to give thanks. That's part of the covenant, is to praise and glorify the God who loves us, redeems us, and keeps us. And part of that treason goes beyond just our own sense of who we are before God, but there's a generational aspect of this as well. Look at chapter uh, 5 and verse 7. They have dealt faithlessly with Yahweh, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. It's a play on words there because uh, the uh, Canaanite religions uh, worship the moon and uh, follow all the you know, the agricultural uh, calendar, lunar calendar, and so on, uh, looking to the gods to supply all their needs and so on. So basically, you're raising alien children, children that don't know God. You've made covenant before God. He's made covenant with you, and it's not just about you, but it's about the succeeding generations. If you don't really know God, you're not going to make an effort to raise your children to know Him. You're going to raise your children to care about the things you care about. Isn't that the general truth? 
And God says, you're not, you're raising pagans. You're not raising the children of God. That's treason against your covenant obligations. And it doesn't just stop in families, but it goes to the nation. Look at chapter 5 and verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. What's that all about? We have spoke, landmarks spoken of in other places around, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, about uh, It's an abomination in the Mosaic Code. It was an abomination to remove the ancient landmark, uh, to basically take the, the survey pin and move it so you could increase your inheritance uh, at the expense of others. The landmarks speak to those 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 places, those those things, those events, those truths that are the governing, the governing, as Brother Matthews would put it, the governing stories, the governing truths that God has given to us and changing them to suit your particular mode and mood. And so uh, this, the princes of Judah become like those who move the landmark. Is any of this happening today in our society? Think about this for a second. How many statues have been torn down in this country? Hundreds. Now whether you, uh, you know, think that the person whose statue was torn down was a great person or not, they're part of the story of who we are. And one of the prime tools that the left has always done is to seek to erase a nation's history and the consciousness of its people. Because if they can do that, then they control the narrative and they can remake it in any way they want to. It's devilish. Even if somebody is a rat fink and he's got a statue up to him, you can look at him and go, yeah, he got a statue there. He did this, that, and the other, but whew, he was a problem child. Don't go that way. We can still benefit from you know, whatever event he might have done, but uh, participated in. But to just pretend they don't exist anymore is foolish. And um, that's exactly what Israel was doing here. The leaders of Judah are like those who remove the landmarks. So those who are casting, are, are trying to erase the nation's conscientious, uh, consciousness of their obligation to God. On a political and social level in this country, you know, how many, how many people, how many young people today have ever read the Constitution of the United States? How many know anything about really how their government works? Minuscule, minuscule percentage. And it's deliberate because such are easier to control. Princes of Judah... If you, if you get rid of, it goes back, think about uh, Jeroboam. What did Jeroboam do when he split off from Rehoboam, when the kingdoms divided? What was the first thing he did? He set up a tabernacle in Samaria to rival Jerusalem. And he, it says there, he did it so that they would not go down to Jerusalem and worship there. He didn't want a united kingdom. He didn't want people to remember that they're actually supposed to be united under their God and not divided under kings. He removed the, the ancient landmarks to serve his own purposes. We need to be careful, do we not? If we really know God, we are going to want to tell his stories. Remind our children and our great grand and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren of who God is and what He has done, who our Savior is and what He has done, and to keep that in the forefront of our homes and in our lives uh, within society, and to remind those around us of who God truly is. If we do not do that, but rather attempt to uh, remake God in our own image. Uh, 
We are demonstrating our ignorance that we do not really know God. So I hope as we've gone through this this morning that the enormity of not knowing God is something that has a, you have a better comprehensive, uh, comprehension of at this point. Now, this passage is going to go on to tell us what the, what the consequences of that ignorance are. Lord willing, we will look at those next week. And then uh, the week following, we'll talk about the cure for that ignorance. And uh, we'll bring us right up to uh, the time of our celebration of our Lord's birth, which in God's providence, this just fits absolutely, the timeline fits absolutely beautifully because ultimately the cure is in our Savior and our Redeemer. But for now, before we get there, uh, let's, let's ruminate, shall we, on, on the elements of ignorance and pray that God would keep us from that ignorance, but rather pray with the Apostle Paul that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your blessings. Blessings of patience. Blessings of revealing yourself to us. Blessings, Lord, of calling us to account. Lord, we know that you're calling Israel to account here in the pages of the prophet Hosea is about and motivated by your covenant loyalty to them, even though they were unfaithful to you. Lord, be patient with us when we sin, when we wander astray as well. Call us back to faithfulness. Chastise us where necessary to bring that about. And let us be a people that is holy unto you, experiencing your mercy experiencing relationship with you that is a blessing and not a curse. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do in our hearts. Convict us of our sins. Help us to walk in newness of life because of what our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us to redeem us from our sins. We pray these things in his blessed name.